Good morning. Um, we are going to continue looking at Romans 8 today, and uh, I don't think there's uh, any better place to um, sit and meditate on the loving heart of Jesus for us is in Romans 8, and uh, so I encourage you to listen to him, to listen to his spirit as we look at these, uh, these few verses here. Um, last week we looked at, uh, at a, the middle section of Romans 8 and talked a lot about um, how that informs our perspective on suffering and how we deal with suffering, how we look at suffering, and, um, and I think these verses uh, absolutely apply as well. Um, he gives us an additional reason to, um, uh, to understand our suffering and, uh, and to even find strength and comfort and maybe even some joy in the midst of the difficult stuff that we deal with. Um, so listen to Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us now as we sit and as we think about your word, as we listen to you, we pray that you would help us to rest. To rest in all that you are and all that you promise to be in the midst of, uh, of all of the stuff that goes on in our lives, all the stuff that we're dealing with even today. We pray that you would help us to, to listen as you speak, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I don't tend to be the sort of person that brags a lot, um, but uh, I'm just going to tell it like it is. When I was in college, I was sort of a master at wasting time. <laughs> I mean, I was really, really good at doing nothing. I was really good at it. Don't get me wrong. I was, I was a good student. I went to my classes. I, went, I studied at the library and everything, but, but I managed to squeeze that in around a lot of doing nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like, I would go, I loved the dining hall at my school, and it was so good. The food was good. There was so much variety there. I would go there, and I would sit and have lunch with people, with, with one group of people, and then they would have to get up and go to class. But I would, you know, just kind of hang out, and another group of people would, would then sit down, and I'd sit with them for another hour. And even though I've eaten lunch already, I'd go and grab a bowl of cereal or something, and I'd eat with them for an hour. And then they would get up and leave, and then another group would come, and I would sit with them for another hour, and I'd go eat another, you know, like uh, ice cream Mickey Mouse bar or something like that. I would, I would sit honestly in the dining hall sometimes for three hours and do nothing. And then I'd walk out of the dining hall, and, and there's this hill right outside the entrance to our dining hall. It was called the hill, and it was the perfect incline for just sitting on. And if it was a nice day, if, even if it was a kind of a decent day, I would definitely just go out and sit on that hill and just hang out, and just watch people walk by, watch other students walk by, see who I knew, say hi to them, see who might come up and sit with me for a few minutes. And, and it was great, because they, they would also have um, people come and do entertainment for, for those who were sitting on the hill sometimes. They'd have like a band play, or somebody would come and speak, or something like that. 
And there was this one time where there was this guy who came out there as I'm sitting on the hill. It was a beautiful day. Sitting on the hill, he came out, and there was this, he had this big, giant canvas on a frame. It was completely white. And, uh, and, and then he, he had all these paints all over the ground, all around him. And, uh, and then they, they, he started playing some music, some really loud music for all of us sitting on the hill. We're watching him. And, and then he, he dips his paintbrush in the paint, and he starts painting this figure on, in the middle of the canvas. And, and then he, and, and he paints for, for a few minutes, for, and, and we're watching him. And we're like, oh, that's, that's nice. And, and, uh, and then he stops, and he looks at it, and then he just dips his hand in like the, uh, the black paint, and he just tosses it across the, the, the canvas, across what he's just painted. And we're like, okay, well, this is getting interesting. And, and the music's blaring, and it's, and it's really loud. And then he immediately just starts like going kind of crazy, where he's, he's like painting with his brush. He's got all sorts of different brushes. He's painting all sorts of things all over the places. It's, nothing is making sense, though. Like he's just throwing different colors, different paints on the canvas. He's, he's not just using brushes. He's using his hand, and he's throwing paint on the canvas. He's smudging paint on the canvas. It seems incredibly haphazard. Like, like the, he's basically painting nothing. And I've, you know, I realized at that moment, I'm like, I have reached the epitome of doing nothing because I'm sitting here doing nothing, watching a guy paint nothing, right? And I was incredibly proud of myself at that moment. And, you know, you can be impressed if you want to. But uh, so, so I, I think that, the reason I, I just mentioned that story, um, I think I've made reference to this story before, but for, for a lot of us, I think some of the time, maybe a lot of the time, life feels like it's kind of going the way that guy paints, where it's very, it feels very random, very haphazard. Things are often happening to us that we're not planning for, that we don't want um, we experience, you know, setbacks in our lives. We experience, we, we get bad news. Um, we, uh, we experience even just small little frustrations in our life. And it, and it doesn't, none of it seems to add up. It's, it's like, you know, is there any purpose or rhyme or reason to all the stuff that's happening in my life? Some of it painful, some of it difficult, some of it hard and discouraging, maybe a lot of it really discouraging. Maybe there's, you know, not just a bunch of tiny things, but there's major things, big catastrophes that you're dealing with in your family or with your health or with your job. And you're wondering, is there, is there any rhyme or reason to this? Is, or is it all just random? Did, did Shakespeare have it right in Macbeth when, I think it was Macbeth, I'm not a real Shakespeare expert, but I think Macbeth maybe said at one point that life is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. And uh, maybe you're tempted sometimes to wonder, is there any rhyme or reason? Is there any purpose? Is, 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 this, is this all just kind of random as I go from day to day? And I think um, these verses in Romans 8 have a lot to say to us as we think about all of the things that we're dealing with in life, and, and especially as we deal about the sense of feeling like it's all random. And, uh, and you know, what is the purpose of this? Why am I going through this? Um, and what we see in Romans 8, 28 through 30, is, is, and what I want to talk about is, is we have, um, it describes, first of all, for, for those who would call themselves Christians, for those who have trusted in, in Jesus, he gives us, he describes a process that God has for us 
that he's working out in our lives. He describes a process, and, and he also gives us a, an incredible, incredibly powerful promise that will shape and transform how you look at everything. And then he also, I think, gives us, those of us who call ourselves Christians, a little bit of a warning as well that completely applies to the people of God. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, first of all, I want, to, I want to just talk about the process, because the process that God has planned for his people really informs the promise, okay? It helps us understand the, the power of the promise a little bit more. Um, and when I talk about the promise, the, the, I mean the process of God, I'm, I want you to focus on verses 29 and 30. So look at verses 29 and 30. In these two verses, we see a process that is described for that, that all of those who, he says, are, are called according to the purpose of God go through, uh, or in other words, all Christians go through. And, he, and it begins with, with God foreknowing you and ends with God glorifying you, okay? Um, and there's a list of several different words that he uses to describe this process that, that every Christian goes through. And, uh, and I'm just going to really quickly just kind of define each of these words, and then I want to make a couple comments on the whole process um, in general. Um, but so, so first of all, it says every, every person who is called according to the purpose of God, every, every person who is a Christian, first of all, you need to know that you are foreknown. You are foreknown. He says in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. What does it mean that God foreknew you? And for some of us, we hear that word, and, and we've maybe studied this before or read this passage before, and, and some of people try to explain this word by saying, well, what that means is that God knows everything and that God sees the future and that God, you know, before you were even born, he, he saw the future and he saw who you would be and he saw how you would um, believe in him and, and he, he, you know, he knew all that about you. He knew all that information about you and that that impacted how he interacted with you. And I, I think that is actually completely wrong, in my opinion. Um, and I think it's completely wrong because of actually what the word means. Um, to foreknow something, okay, it's to know something beforehand, to know someone beforehand. And, and it's helpful to understand, how is the word to know used in the Bible? What does it mean to know someone in the Bible? Um, and, and as you look at the Bible, as you look at the way the word to know is used, the, the word knowing someone is used, it, it doesn't mean uh, that you know information about someone primarily, but it actually means that you are committed to an intimate relationship with that person, that you love that person. For example, um, Adam and Eve, right at the beginning of Genesis, it says that Adam knew Eve, and as a result, they had a child. Okay? When it talks in the Old Testament, it talks about that God constantly talks about how he knows Israel. He knew Israel. That doesn't mean that he just knew information about Israel. It means that he was committed to them. He had chosen them to be his people. He had chosen to set his love upon them. Okay? So that's when, when it says that he foreknew you, what that means is that before you were even born, before you even existed, God set his love upon you. He chose to commit himself to you, to intimately commit himself to you, all right? So God chose to, to commit intimately to you, and not only did he foreknow you, but he also predestined you. This is a big word that a lot of people debate about, and I'm not going to get into the big debate about it. I, I encourage you to ask me about it afterwards. I love to talk about this, but, but um, 
I, I just want to focus on this idea that to, to be predestined is that he, he chose to, to set your destiny in a certain way, okay? He predestined you. He, he chose to, to love you. He foreknew you. And so he decided how your life would go and what your ultimate destiny would be. What would that ultimate, ultimate destiny be? It's, it says it right here. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. He decided that he was going to make something of you. He was going to work in your life in such a way that he's going to make you more and more and more like Jesus. He's, he, he, it basically means that he chose you to be part of his family, to, to be a brother or sister of his son Jesus, and to carry on the family resemblance of Jesus. And so he, he foreknew you, he predestined you, and he called you. If you're a Christian, he called you. And, and I, I talked a little bit about what it means to be called at the beginning of this series when we looked at Romans 1. But when you talk about God calling people, it's not like, um, you know, he's just uh, uh, calling into the darkness, hoping that somebody responds to him. It's not like, you're, you know, when you get a call on your phone and you see the number that comes up and you decide, do I want to answer this or not? Do I know this person or not? Do I want to deal with this conversation or not? And you can choose to just, you know, say, no, I'm not going to deal with this. No, the call of God involves something that is powerful, something that accomplishes something. When God speaks, as you look at the Bible, over and over again, what happens when God speaks? There is power. He creates. Things happen, right? Again, look at Genesis. When God, when God called forth the light, light had no choice but to appear. When God called forth water and oceans and streams and and mountains, it came into being. When God called forth animals and people, we came into being. I mean, look at Jesus, who gives us the perfect representation of who God is in human form. What happened when he called to people? They responded, they followed him. But, but even like the, the most vivid example, when, when I, as I thought of when, when Jesus is standing before the tomb of Lazarus, a dead man, and Jesus called out, right? He called Lazarus. Lazarus, come out. What did Lazarus do? He got up. Even though he was dead, he came alive, and he got up, and he walked out of the tomb. He had no choice in the matter. And so in a sense, not only did God foreknow you and predestine you, but he called you. It, it, when, it, when, when it talks about God calling you, it, it's, it's referring to the, the work of God's spirit working in you to say, you are mine. Come awake. Come alive. I'm making you new. And so it says he, he called us as well. And, and, then, and then it talks about the fact that he, those he called, he also justified. And we've talked a lot about what it means to be justified in the book of Romans. Paul has talked about this a lot. To be justified is, is to have God proclaim upon our lives that we are righteous, that we are acceptable, that we are his, that we are forgiven. And so... Those he called, he also justified. It, it, when, it, when he talks about justifying us, it, it refers to all of the work that God has done to make us right with him, to, to forgive our sins, and to make us righteous, to make us enough in his eyes. And so he declares that we are righteous. He declares that we are enough. He, he declares that we are his children. We are justified. And then lastly, it says, those he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified, what does that mean? It and we, he's been talking about being glorified earlier in this chapter. And, and we, I mentioned this, I think, last week or the week before, that to be glorified is to be, is to be made perfect. 
to, to finally be made to experience life as we were meant to experience it, to live life as we were meant to live, live it, to be perfect, to be righteous. That's what it means to be glorified. To be glorified is to become like Jesus, ultimately, is to become like Jesus, become like what we were meant to be. That's what it means to be glorified. Now, he says God has a plan to glorify us. The reality is we, we are walking around here. We're like, I don't really feel glorified right now. None of us, I don't think, feel really glorified. We don't feel like we are like shining and perfect. We know we aren't. The reality is that this process and God glorifying us, it's, it's a future thing. None of us will be fully glorified until Jesus returns and he makes all things new, including you and me. And each and one of us are made perfect and we are glorified. But here, it's interesting that he talks about being glorified in the past tense, right? And I think this is just kind of a, a grammatical device uh, that, that often writers would use. And especially if you look at the prophets, often they would talk about something future, but they would refer to it in the past tense. And the reason they would refer to it in the past tense is to encourage us with the reality that this is certain. Even though it's future, I'm going to talk about it as if it happened because it's definitely going to be true, okay? It's certain. And so this is the process God has for each and every one of you who have trusted in Jesus. He foreknew you. He set his love upon you before you even existed. He planned for you to, 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 to be changed and to grow and to become like Jesus. He set your destiny he called you, he awakened you to come alive to him. He justified you, he made you right with him through the work of Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, and he will glorify you. The thing I want to point out about this process is that, number one, God is the one doing everything here. God is the one doing all of it, right? He is in charge of the process from the beginning to the end. And he is going to make it happen. It's not in doubt. It's not in doubt. He is sovereign over this whole process. That's one thing that I want to just point out. And the other thing I want to point out is that, that you know, how you have this, a lot, of, a lot of commentators talk about this kind of being like a golden chain of salvation where, you know, it begins with, you know, those he foreknew, that group, those are the same people he predestined. And, and that group is the same people that he called. And that's, that, that group is the same exact people that he justified and that he glorified. There's nobody that's like, you know, I'm not sure if this person's going to make it or not. Every single one who is foreknown is ultimately glorified. God is going to get it done. God is going to get it done in your life if you are his and you have trusted in him. Okay, so God is sovereign over this whole process. He's sovereign over your life. There's nothing that will stop him from accomplishing exactly what he wants to in your life. And that is good to understand, especially when you think about the promise that he makes in verse 28. Because what does he say in verse 28? He says, for those who love God, we know that all things work together for the good. All things work together for the good. God can tell me that all things work together for the good because he is intimately involved and working in every aspect of my life, in every stage of my life, in every circumstance of my life, 
to make sure he gets done what he's planning to get done. He is sovereign over it all. That, that's, that understanding the process helps us understand that, that the power that is underneath and around and behind the promise. And so I just want to just point out two things that are important to understand about this promise. First, and they're pretty obvious. He says we know that God works all things together, right? When he says all things, that means all things. That means all things. That means that if you are a Christian, there is not a single thing in your life that God isn't able to use and isn't using for your good. Not a single thing. That includes the small little details of your everyday life, the things that that you're frustrated with, the things that you, you, know, you have to get done, all those things, God, using, God is using them. All the, th- all the aspects of your work, the frustrations of your work, everything, he's using it for your good. That includes the, the major life-changing catastrophes that happen in your life. He is using those. It includes the trauma that we have been through in our past. He is using that. And this isn't to say that he is the one who has authored those things. He hasn't caused those things to happen to you, but he is able to use them. And he is using them, all things, all things. Even your own, you know, personality, your own idiosyncrasies, your your own sin he is using for your good somehow. Again, that doesn't mean, okay, well, if he's using my sin for it, like if he's using my bad habits and my sin and my, you know, then I can just, you know, Live however I want. No, we've already discussed that in the last several chapters. Don't forget, you are united to Jesus. He's made you new. That is not who you are. But he's even able to use your own sin and your own failure for your good. He uses all of it. Nothing, nothing is wasted. When, I, when we first got married, I, was, I took a job just try to, to try to pay the bills in, in this like wood working factory where they just made these different wooden things. I can't even, I don't want to bore you with it, but just all sorts of just wooden stuff we made. And so the project manager, often I would just like stand at the station and just for 10 hours, just cut a board into like 10 inch pieces all day. And the project manager, one of his big jobs was to make sure there was as little waste as possible, you know, because they want to, in order to, to make sure they're maximizing their, their, their profits and everything like that, they don't want to waste stuff. So he would always make sure that, you know, we would, we would like use as much of a board and much of a 12-foot board as possible. And then if you could use the leftover for something else, you would use the leftover for something else. But no matter how hard he tried, there was always stuff left over. There was always stuff that, that was left over. There was always scrap. This is the thing. Think about your life. There is no scrap wood in your life that God isn't able to use and isn't using. Every single little every single little experience, every single little thing that happens to you, God, this, this promise says God is using for your good. Every little bit of it. Every little bit of it. And another thing, like I, uh, uh, it's hard for me to really relate to this and understand this promise because as I try to accomplish things in my life, there's constantly moments where I'm like, Oops. Shoot. For example, I tried to fix something here at church the other week. Um, sorry, deacons or whoever's going to have to follow up 
with me, follow up with this thing afterwards. But I, you know, I was like, oh, it's just a screw. I just got to put a screw in here. This shouldn't be hard. And uh, so I brought my, my drill from home, and I was like all excited to just fix it. It's going to take like 30 seconds. And, uh, and so I, I, I obviously used like maybe like too big of a screw or something, and, and I screwed it. I got like halfway in there, and then it wouldn't go any further, and then I stripped the screw. So I think I made the problem worse, guys. And I'm like, ah! Not only did I not fix it, but I made it worse. And uh, that happens regularly in my life. That never happens with God and how he is working with your issues and your life. He's never like, whoops, uh-oh. Uh oh. Never. Never. And so he's working all things, all things for your good. Uh, but that brings me to the second part that I, I, we need to understand about this promise is that um, we need to understand what good means, okay? When he says he's working all things for your good, well, I can just sit back. God's, you know, he's, he, he's working for my comfort. He's working for my pleasure. He's working so that my life goes as smoothly as possible, Right? That is not what he means when he says all things are for your good. When he talks about your good, he spells it out right here. What is your good? Your greatest good is to become more like Jesus. That's what it says right here in verse 29. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He, he, our greatest good is to become like Jesus. It's to think like Jesus. It's to respond to things and people like Jesus. It's to love people like Jesus. It's to interact with God as my father, like Jesus did. It's, it's to become more like Jesus in every facet of my being. That is my greatest good. I mean, make no doubt, the more you become like Jesus, the more full of joy you will be. That is absolutely true. The more you're like Jesus, the more sense you will have of, of real serious peace and contentment. That is absolutely true. Your greatest good is to become more like Jesus. And, and, and so um, don't get annoyed and frustrated when uh, you know, your life gets hard or uncomfortable because that's part of the process. That's part of the process of you becoming more like Jesus. I mean, really, to become more like, more like Jesus is ultimately be, to become more alive. That is what it means. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, in, in Mere Christianity, he, uh, there's a quote here, I love, I love uh, how he puts it. He says, um, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale his own boundless power and delight and goodness. There is nothing greater to become than that. Nothing. Nothing greater to experience than that. That is your greatest good. That is what God is working for in all things. All things. Now, this is an incredible promise that colors everything that we encounter in life, but I, I think there's also a warning here because the promise doesn't just apply to everyone, right? Right? Verse 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good. He says, for those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. And up till now, I've just been kind of defining it as as for for those who are Christians, for those who have trusted in Jesus. And and up till now in Romans, Paul, Paul has been giving us a definition of what a Christian is by telling us that a Christian is a person who has received the gift of God in Jesus Christ by faith. We believe what God has done for us. We have trusted in him. That's what makes a Christian. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. Paul has made it clear. But now he gives us a a, a definition of a Christian from a slightly different perspective. And he says a Christian is also one who loves God. A Christian is one who loves God. What does that mean? And I want to be careful here because everything up until now is true. Paul Paul has absolutely been clear. It's about the fact that to be a Christian is to receive what God has done for us. To be a Christian is to believe that, that what God has done is enough to trust in what Jesus has done and his life, his death, his resurrection. But, but I think there's also reality to the fact that, that to be in a relationship with God means that we love him. What does it mean? What does it mean to love him? Well, I don't think, and, and this is why I want to be careful, I, I don't think we, we, to hear this, to, that, that God works for the good of those who love him, it can be tempting for us to be like, oh, well, then I've got to make sure that I love him really, really good or else he's not going to love me back. And that that is not the case, as Paul has already made clear. But I think the reality is, is that when you come into a relationship with God and you understand what God has done for you, and that your relationship with him is dependent on his love for you, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we understand that, then the genuine response is to love him back. It's to love him back. And, and, and when I say to love him back, I'm not necessarily talking about have really big feelings of affection necessarily. Although I think we should grow in our affection for God as we live our lives and continue to follow him and continue to see his faithfulness and his, and his goodness. But a lot of times when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about commitment. It's talking about giving yourself to somebody. And so when it talks about those who love God, I think what he's telling us is that a Christian is not just somebody who has, who has agreed with some information about who God is and who Jesus is, but a Christian is somebody who has given ourselves to a person, who has given ourselves to, to Jesus in relationship to him, to walk with him, to know him. Again, yeah, to trust him, to give yourself to Jesus because there is no one greater To love him is to come to a place where you actually see him as incredibly valuable. To see him as the thing that you, the one that you treasure above all other things. That's what he invites us into. And so that's who this promise is for. Those who have come to see that Jesus is enough. Those who have have come to a place where we have given ourselves to him because of all that he has done to love us and care for us, and even continue to give ourselves to him because of this, things like this, this promise itself. I'm going to work all things for your good. There's also, I think, a warning for those, just real briefly, for those who, who do not love God, right? Because just as it is true that he, for those who love God, he works everything for our good, I think it's equally true 
that it's very, that it's very possible that the, those who do not, do not love God, those, those who have not come into a relationship with Jesus, that in fact the opposite is true. That everything is working against you. Everything is working for the opposite of your good. And that doesn't just mean the bad things that happen. That means even the good things. That means your success. That means your achievements. That means your, your victories in life. Even those things are working against your good because those are contributing to your pride and your self-sufficiency and even your self-centeredness, possibly. And so we need to hear the warning. If you come here this morning um, because you love him, because you've come to a place where you see how good he is and how much he loves you and how perfect his love is and, you want, and you've given yourself to him. If that is true of you, then he is working all things. All things for your good. Let me just finish here. As I was sitting on that hill in college thinking about uh, how I had reached the apex of doing nothing and feeling so proud of myself. I'm, I'm watching this guy and, and the music is blaring and He's throwing paint across the canvas, smudging it with his entire hand. He's like, this is just craziness, you know? And he finally finishes, and he steps back. And of course, everybody, you know, there's, there's, the, the entire canvas is filled of paint, completely unrecognizable as anything. And so he finishes, and he steps back, and, and people kind of recognize that he's done. So you hear just like two or three people just be like, <laughs> maybe one person, you're just like, whoo, you know? And then he stands there for another few seconds, and he looks at it, and then he turns his head sideways, and then he steps forward, and he grabs the edges of the frame, and he starts turning it over, and he completely turns it upside down and puts it back on the frame. And when he does that, everybody's eyes just go, what? And, and what we see there is, is this vivid, colorful, perfect painting of Jimi Hendrix playing a guitar as this Jimi Hendrix song is playing loudly in the background. And everybody explodes into applause. What looked like complete random stuff, you know, paint just being thrown on the canvas, he had a specific purpose for all of it, and he was painting something that was glorious glorious and beautiful. That's who God is. He's an artist. He's an artist. And we often may look at our lives and be like, what is this? But he's painting something that has every little piece of it has a purpose and it is working for your good. For your good. And that includes the most like, horrific thing in all of history, right? Jesus, when Jesus, he had all these followers, and, and then he went to the cross, and, and that must have seemed like the most random thing to them all. What is happening here? This doesn't make any sense. This picture that his disciples were looking at when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it made no sense to them. It seemed completely random. And yet, they found out three days later when Jesus walked out of the grave, walked out of the tomb. It all had a purpose. It all had a purpose. It all has a purpose. He is good. He is powerful. He is committed. And he, and he encourages you to surrender to him as an artist. Let's pray.
Father, we, we thank you for these verses here. And, um, you know, we could talk about them all morning, all afternoon, all week, and we wouldn't get to the bottom. This promise here is immense. And if we will listen and apply it as we live our lives, as we look at the things that are happening in our lives, big and small, it, it does, it transforms everything. It transforms how we perceive everything. It, it, it changes our attitude from being cynical and pessimistic to being incredibly hopeful. Help us to remember. Help us to remember your promise in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our uncertainties. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now go to the Lord's table where he reminds us of the, the beautiful painting that he has been working on throughout all of history, the centerpiece of that painting, which is Jesus himself. And as we, as we approach the table, let's confess our sin together using the prayer that's printed in your order of worship. We'll take a, a moment to, to confess our sin together out loud with, the, with this prayer, and then we'll have a silent time of confession. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for being the God from whom all blessings flow, the judge who declared us righteous in Christ, and the Lord now working in all things for our good. In response to such grace and love, we gladly take the place of humility and confession. Forgive us for caring more about people's approval than cherishing your acceptance. Forgive us for being quick to judge others and slow to forgive them. Forgive us for scheduling ourselves into exhaustion and bad attitudes. Father, teach us how to live and love at the pace of grace. In Christ's name, amen. Father, we now take a moment in the silence to privately confess our individual sin to you. Father, we confess our sin and we rest in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the first Peter 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what Jesus has done for you. He has given us a living hope. He has made us new. He's made us right with God, our Father, our Creator, the lover of our souls. And if you have trusted in him and received his gift of life this morning, this meal is for you. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in him, if you've never given yourself to him in relationship, um, then I urge you to, to let the elements pass. But, but I also urge you to consider, consider his love for you and what that invites you into. Listen to the words of institution from Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's